Welcome into the Sun Devil Source Report podcast. I'm your host, Rob Warner, and today I'm joined, as always, by site publisher Chris Carman, as well as reporters Mason Kern, Trevor Booth, and Jacob Rudner. Guys, how we doing? Football season, the regular season, has ended. It is Thursday after the Territorial Cup. We'll be reviewing that game, and we have a lot more planned, but how's everybody feeling? Hasn't slowed down at all, Rob. It feels like it's accelerated. I always, at this time of year... Think about getting to the finish line of the the last game, the Territorial Cup, and then maybe getting a breather. And then I realize, oh, no, there's not going to be a breather. Uh, we stopped working, what, like 4 a.m. or something after that game. Before 10 a.m., uh, Mark Brand, ASU's uh, SID, was, was calling, saying that uh, he wanted to get us on a conference call with Herm Edwards, four of the beat reporters. Uh, we I pretty much knew that that was you know, going to be some big news. And then from there, we've just been kind of running. So, yeah, I'm doing great, Rob. Uh, to our new subscribers, oh crap, you're here, Mason. De- uh, to our new subscribers after the deal, uh, welcome. We're excited to have you on the site, and uh, hope you enjoy the podcast and everything that comes with uh, peak recruiting season. That's a great point. I want to say that we had uh, well over a hundred new subscribers from our Cyber Monday promotion. Uh, second on the pack in the Pac-12 behind USC. Uh, also, to our existing subscribers, like super pumped to say that we were third on the network yesterday in upgrade promotions, first by far in the the Pac-12. So that uh, sort of backs up a lot of the things that I've been saying recently about the level of excitement in the ASU fan base for where things are at right now. I'm sure Jane Daniels plays a big part in that. Uh, there's a lot of interest in the coaching changes. We're going to be talking right. about that coming up, but I'll, but just really want to reiterate that we're really happy and thankful for all the subscribers, both new and continuing, including people who have reached out to me who said that they've upgraded, uh, after being, you know, members with, for us for 10 plus years. Trevor, Jacob, yeah. Brooks doing good, Rob. It, it's interesting this week to not go out and report on a daily basis for football and getting out of that flow and into basketball. So looking forward to getting started with that, though. Hey, Rudner, what were you doing 15 years ago when I became a publisher of uh, covering ASU sports? I was I was four. I was four years old. <laughs> All right, we're going to move on, but we're going to talk about what Chris was alluding to when uh, he got the call from Mark Brand. Um, and it was about the dismissal about three offensive coaches, Rob Likens, Charlie Fisher, and uh, Donnie Yantis. Um, Donnie Yantis and Charlie Fisher had their contracts up, and they were not renewed, and Rob Likens was dismissed as the offensive coordinator. Chris, you had lunch with Rob Likens yesterday. What more can you tell us about that situation? Well, first, let me just say that Donnie Yantis and Charlie Fisher both knew that they were probably getting fired months ago. Uh, ASU had decided not to renew their contracts after the previous season, 2018, and uh, that's usually writing on the wall. The contracts run through the end of February, which is, as you guys know, the spring football period for ASU. Uh, it used to be that that contracts ran into through June. They've kind of changed that because of the way that a lot of the coaches tend to get dismissed right after the season or maybe spring ball. Um, so I think... Donnie Yannis told me months ago that he knew there was a really good chance that he wouldn't be back. Um, and so that, that was kind of anticipated by me, even though I really couldn't talk about it because I, I never got it sourced to report that. Uh, Rob Likens, I, I knew there was a chance that he wouldn't re- be return uh, and that, and that there, they'd want to go in a different direction, Herm Edwards, but I didn't know for sure that that was happening. And uh, from the conversation that I had with Likens, um, this week for lunch, he basically told me that he didn't know it was going to happen. Uh, he actually had his schedule 
uh, set up to go on the road for recruiting because coaches, they typically on that Monday, right after the territorial cup there, um, they have two weeks to go basically recruit ahead of the early signing period. And, um, he had all of his, his schedule booked, but he did say that in, in the two weeks prior to uh, the Territorial Cup, things started to change a little bit in, in terms of his interactions with Herm Edwards. And so he had a sense that something was a little bit different and that ASU uh, might be going in a different direction. I asked him, we talked about it a lot, and I, I posted in the Devil Sanctuary quite a bit so people can read it to get everything, but mm-hmm. um, he said, there was there weren't really too many specific things that were that were said to him by Edwards as far as the details of why they were going in a different direction. It was more so f- described as just stylistic differences and, and different kind of perspectives on things. Um, a lot of sources around the situation have told me that the the styles of the two coaches are quite different, especially on game days. Uh, on the headsets, you have a very stoic Edwards, and then you have a, a frenetic Likens. And I don't think that that uh, melding was one that Edwards uh, preferred style-wise. Mm-hmm. I think he wants someone that's you know a little bit more um, like him in, in that respect. And then, of course, we're going to get into some of the, the candidates here, but I, I also think it's pretty clear that given his background that Edwards likes – pro-style offense. He's he's very enamored by um, max protection, play actions, two-route structures, moving the quarterback, not really being a a up-tempo, modernized spread type of offense, even though a lot of these offenses are now very amalgamated. Um, A a lot of stuff that um, has actually been then reflected in who the OC candidates are as we're going to get into. But Rob Likens, very classy, extremely classy. He said, reiterated something he's told me in the past, which is that ASU is his favorite place he's ever been in his coaching career, and he would have loved to have been able to coach at ASU for the remainder of his career. So uh, went out completely, you know, in in an above-board way, and I've known him, you know, really well for quite a while, and he was being very earnest in everything that he had to say. So it wasn't just something that he was saying mm-hmm. – because that was the message that he wanted out there. I, I'm very confident this is how he actually really felt. And some candidates for the position um, that are reportable. Hugh Jackson, Brian Lindgren, the Oregon offensive coordinator. Zach Oregon Hill. State. Oregon State, excuse me. The Oregon, Oregon State offensive coordinator. Zach Hill, uh, the Boise State offensive coordinator. Hugh Jackson, uh, a former NFL coach for the Raiders and the Cleveland Browns most recently. What's the latest on that, Chris? Well, Hugh Jackson was at ASU three to four weeks ago. Remember when Jake Plummer was honored? Jackson uh, was there because he coached Jake Plummer, quarterback's coach in 1995 at ASU. Before that, he had been a running back's coach for for two or three years at ASU under Bruce Snyder. That was probably um, one of the best recruiting staffs that ASU's had in modern, you know, history of the Pac-12 era, I would say, in the last 40-something years. And... um, of course, not only does Herm Edwards know Hugh Jackson really well because they were both in the NFL for a long time together, but Hugh Jackson's uh, very familiar with, with Marvin Lewis, having worked with Marvin Lewis in the past, a, the special assistant to to uh, Edwards. And, and um, so those guys have a, a tremendous amount of familiarity. Mm-hmm. 
Uh, a lot of people, of course, know that Hugh Jackson didn't have much success as a head coach, but he was a offensive coordinator in the NFL for a lot of years for a variety of teams, probably like four or five teams. And so, so they know what they would be getting with him. Of course, uh, when you have Jaden Daniels, you want to try to pair him with the right system scheme, something that's more ready out of the box and than uh, someone who's going to be like developing into that role. So he's an option, but as we also uh, have learned and you mentioned, um, Brian Lindgren is a candidate that was reported by football scoop. I I've been able to confirm that I'd actually heard that off the record the day before that, uh, that report came out and Lindgren talked a lot about him in the devil sanctuary. So I think people want to hop in there again for that. But, uh, Edwards was very impressed by what he saw from Oregon state's offense this year when they played at Corvallis. It was a lot of things actually that ASU started to do later in the season. And Likens told me that he wasn't pushed really in that direction by Edwards. It was more so that he wanted to do that, but some of their capabilities early in the year didn't enable that. Remember ASU came out against UCLA, tried to run two tight end stuff and uh, didn't work. They had two false starts in a row by Curtis Hodges and that sort of derailed mm -hmm. uh, what they were trying to do. But that's when you go to Oregon state, they, they do a lot of the condensed formation bootlegs two receiver routes, delay route stuff. Um, and, uh, Lindgren was at Colorado previously under Mike McIntyre and they ran a pro style uh, offense. But mm -hmm. then, but then uh, after that, Darren Shiverini who had been at Texas tech in the air raid became a co-coordinator at Colorado and they had their best season as they modernized to more of an up-tempo sort of a hybrid style of an offense between the two. So Lindgren has been able to take from, uh, various offensive minds during his career um, and you know being at at uh, Oregon State where Jonathan Jonathan Smith is the head coach who previously had been under Dennis Erickson uh, one of the originators of the one back offense uh, at, at Washington State uh, and then later under Chris Peterson at Boise State so he's got a lot of minds that he's learned from and his offense reflects all of those things mm -hmm. Uh, and now with, with uh, Zach Hill, he was a quarterback and a very good one um, in college at the FCS level. His career, uh, you know, he's been at Eastern Washington. He was at Hawaii as its offensive coordinator, I think, in 2015. The last four years, he's been at Boise State under Brian Harson, who's a very good offensive coach, not coincidentally also somebody who worked under Chris Peterson for a lot of years at Boise State mm -hmm. and was an offensive coordinator himself, somebody that um, years ago we talked about as a candidate for ASU's head coaching job. This is when Todd Graham was hired. Uh, we saw Brian Harson as a potential young, up-and-coming type of guy who was going to become a head coach, and that's actually what ended up happening. So Zach Hill now has taken on a lot of the the Brian Harson, Chris Peterson stuff that he's merged with some other things. They also do a lot of pro-style quarterback under center, two tight end stuff. I, I watched a little bit of their their Florida State game. I, I remember that they were in a two tight end and one fullback set to start the game. They had one receiver on the field, and so what we're getting at here is it's pretty clear that, that uh, Herm Edwards is, wants to go more in the direction of pro style or pro style hybrid um, with spread offense, um, a modernized version of that perhaps, but something that gets a lot of tight ends on the field is not an up-tempo spread 
certainly not an air raid type of a, an offensive structure. He's a defensive coach by nature. Everybody knows that. And so he's trying to pair the style of defense that he likes with something that's advan- advantageous for it on the offensive side of the ball. And something that we haven't mentioned yet is who will be taking over the duties for the bowl game. Dave Christensen and running backs coach Sean Aguano will be sharing play calling duties for the bowl game. But but what do we expect, Chris, with that for this bowl game? How do we expect the offense to look? Yeah, also both of those guys and Mike Brukovici are all on the road recruiting for ASU. We should also mention that ASU's uh, already hired Prentice Gill, who um, – was an offensive analyst at Oregon this past year. Prior to that, he was a graduate assistant at USC. He's 29. He's a young, up-and-coming recruiter. Uh, Antonio Pierce, ASU's recruiting coordinator, told me that Prentice Gill is, in his opinion, maybe the best young recruiter in the Pac-12 and was involved behind the scenes because analysts and GAs don't get a lot of the credit. Behind the scenes was... uh, um, a driving force in a lot of what Oregon's been able to do this in this recruiting class in Southern California. And there's ramifications for that. As people know, uh, Johnny Wilson, who's a, 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 a offensive line. I mean, a part of me, a wide receiver recruit, six, six, big, strong pass catcher out of Calabasas uh, is an Oregon commit. Who's considering flipping to ASU and, and ASU has positioned itself for one of the best wide receivers classes, probably, um, uh, in, in, in recent, uh, 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 history. So, um, I, I, I just think with the bowl game, we've, we've seen this before and, um, you know, certainly, um, it's not the, the most advantageous situation for, for a team to go through. Uh, I would say that Dave Christensen and, uh, Sean Aguano are going to co-coordinate. My guess is Dave Christensen is the play caller, and uh, he knows everything they've been doing, and Rob Likens, and he's you know intimately involved in all all those details. So, so yeah, yeah. And um, the bowl situation that's present now. I mean, Trevor, we've been reporting that right now. It seems like there's just about two bowls. What more can you tell us about those bowls and what's looking like it's most likely? Yeah, Rob. So after last weekend, there remained seven Pac-12 bowl eligible teams. Oregon State and Colorado lost, so there wasn't able to be added two more. Um, ASU benefited from both of those results, actually, as well as their win over Arizona. Um, If Oregon State had won, they would have been another rung back in terms of the Pac-12 pecking order. But ASU is now actually in a tie for fourth um, over Cal, or excuse me, with Cal, um, which it beat in Washington, um, one of the schools that it hadn't faced this season. Um, So when looking at the potential bowl games for ASU, the two most likely at this point are the Holiday Bowl and the Sun Bowl. And obviously the Holiday Bowl is the more favorable game. It's the third Pac-12 tie-in. You've got the Rose Bowl, then the Alamo Bowl, and then that one. Um, ASU, again, put itself in that position with the win over Arizona. But at this rate, um, when it comes down to what that game is out of ASU's control, um, what needs to happen is Oregon and Utah both need to make New Year's Six Bowls. The most likely way that this happens, actually, is that Oregon wins the Pac-12 championship and Utah would still be likely to make a New Year's Six Bowl, and that would be the Cotton Bowl. Um, If you want to compare that to a few years ago, Oregon made the college football playoff in 2015, Mm -hmm. and Arizona, who came in around, I think, the seventh, um, number seven in the country that year, got bumped back to number 10, but they still made the Fiesta Bowl. So that's very much a possibility um, if Utah loses that game. It can also happen if Utah wins and makes the college football playoff which would move Oregon to the Rose Bowl. But that's not necessarily as much of a lot considering Oklahoma is still right there as well as Baylor. They can make the jump over Utah. There's some unpredictable things that could happen there. 
Um, so again, and then USC would be in the Alamo Bowl. So it would be between ASU, Washington, and Cal for the Holiday Bowl in San Diego. If you look at it in terms of traveling, Cal would probably be the, the least likely out of all those schools in terms of the traveling um, habits of their fans and then also distance-wise. So it would probably come down to Washington and ASU in that case. And that can be a little bit tricky just because ASU and Washington didn't play this season. But if you look at some of the, the recent articles, and some people in our boards actually mentioned this yesterday, it appears that ASU has a little bit of favor in terms of the Hollywood, uh, excuse me, the Holiday Bowl over Washington. So that's something to keep an eye on. Um, if ASU is not selected for the Holiday Bowl, it's unlikely that they're probably selected for the Red Box Bowl, which is the next tie-in, um, because location-wise, that makes the most sense for Cal, which is just 37 miles away Berkeley is from Santa Clara. So there's that. Um, there's that. It's not impossible, but again, because of that location-wise and what it can mean. Um, so that would put ASU probably in the Sun Bowl if it's not. In the Holiday Bowl, it's favorable over Washington and Cal in that scenario, and then Washington State, which is the seventh school um, in the Pac-12 Bowl eligibility um, pecking order. Uh, because of location-wise, El Paso, it probably has the best travel scenarios. Um, if Oregon and Utah are, are both, both don't make the New Year's Six Bowl, if there's just one, this is probably a likely location for ASU because of you consider those three schools that it's near. Um, it has the best travel accommodations for that. Um, if Oregon and Utah um, both make the New Year's Six Bowls, the last Pac-12 tie-in would actually be the Las Vegas Bowl, so the Cheese Bowl would be out of the equation at that point. But ASU put itself in a good position to be in one of either of those two bowls with the twin over Arizona. Right, so um, after we put up the, our story that kind of detailed a lot of this, there was a report in the San Diego Union-Tribune that, uh, that included quotes from a bowl representative for um, – that bowl game there. So basically I think for, for the holiday bowl, ASU is actually in the driver's seat from the, the gist of what was said in that, in that interaction. Uh, I think, I think um, they basically, you know, indicated that they would prefer ASU to Washington, but also didn't rule out Washington or, or Cal. So that matches kind of what we have been hearing and the holiday bowl and the sun bowl were the two bowls that were at ASU's game against Arizona which reflects the two most likely bowls that we have uh, just to underline what Trevor's talking about there. Um, it, either Utah needs to get into the playoff or Utah needs to make uh, the cotton bowl in Oregon into the Rose bowl. If, if, if either one of those things doesn't happen, Oregon drops down to the Alamo or Utah loses to Oregon and then drops down uh, ASU will not be in the Holiday Bowl because USC would play would elevate to the Holiday Bowl. In that scenario, ASU probably ends up in the Sun Bowl. Um, I think it. I it, I think it would be a surprise if ASU was in the Red Box or Vegas or or cheese it at this point. Mm -hmm. uh, I know fans probably have strong opinions about you know, which bowls they like. The twenty seventh, I believe, is the on a on a on a weekend is the uh, the Holiday Bowl and the Sun Bowl is on the 31st on New Year's Eve day. It kind of makes travel difficult getting back and, and some of those things. But uh, those are the two most likely scenarios. So ASU fans maybe should be rooting for a close game in the Pac-12 championship this Friday then. I mean, if you think about it and the fact that ASU is either hoping that Utah makes the playoff or that the game isn't lopsided enough that one of them can drop outside of a New Year's Six Bowl, right? Um, yeah, well, or Utah blows out Oregon and, and that solidifies its standing as a top four team, which then leads to Oregon being in the Rose Bowl. Right. You, you, Oregon blowing out Utah would be the worst case scenario for ASU fans. 
Okay. Well, now we're going to get into the Which, by the way, cup. is not going to happen. <laughs> Now we're going to get more into the Territorial Cup. And we'll have a premium podcast uh, next week that's going to be more of a full-season review as ASU transitions into Herm Edwards' third season with the program. Um, but, guys, just giving us your thoughts on, on sort of what happened in the game, I'll give a little uh, a brief review of what happened. A slow start by ASU offensively, just six points in the first half. In the second half, uh, a lot of running. Uh, the first drive for ASU was 11 straight run plays with Eno Benjamin. Uh, I believe Kyle Williams had one and Jaden Daniels. Um, doing his thing, running the ball as well. ASU scored a touchdown on that drive. You know, Benjamin really was the story of the game for for the Sun Devils, 168 rushing yards. He also had three catches in that game, two touchdowns. Um, what were you guys' impressions of that game? I think it was really important uh, for ASU to uh, shut down J.J. Taylor. Uh, Danny Gonzalez said as much uh, after the game as well. And, I mean, granted, Khalil Tate was able to uh, get out of the pocket somewhat and extend some plays, but at the end of the day, I mean, he threw a lot of incomplete passes as well. But but when he was scrambling, it, it hurt ASU a little bit. On one play, Tyler Johnson beat the tackle so bad, and, and Danny Gonzalez even said it, he thought it probably surprised Johnson even, and then it kind of created a little gap for Tate to run through. But overall, I mean, ASU's run defense was pretty stout, and uh, the ability for them to shut down J.J. Taylor for the majority of, of the game really helped in their effort to to win. It was a, a surprise, and we talked a little bit about uh, excuse me about it after the first quarter that it was a zero zero game, and then at halftime it was seven to six. And we were talking about in our predictions how it, uh, going against U of A, which was the worst I think scoring defense in the Pac twelve or among them, that this was a game that ASU could probably put up thirty points against, and it, and it really took a while for that to get going. Um, this, the story I wrote after the game and what we highlighted, uh, you just highlighted, Rob, was Eno Benjamin. And we saw that um, block on the Arizona player that he had um, going into the sidelines in the first half and talking about him with the history of this game, how he said he wanted to be the most hated man in Tucson. And they really uh, gave it to him in the second half. Uh, Jaden Daniels only had two pass attempts then. And then we saw that 11-play drive out of halftime where it was all rushing attempts. And they really just threw that down. Arizona's throat in the second half and um, hearing from Eno Benjamin after the game and just the importance of he wanted to set the precedent or set the tone for the younger players on this team about what this rivalry means and he got a little bit emotional about that and he really showed it in this game with mm -hmm. with how he ran the football and how he you know got in the face of some of the U of A players uh, continuing on from last year so that was something big um, for him too and what could have been his final game. I think Excuse me. I think I think Trevor mentioned it. One of the things that was interesting to me throughout the game was that Arizona entered with one of the worst defenses in the FBS, especially in its secondary. And we had covered that in our preview podcast leading up to the game. And Chris, you and I talked about it during the game, how ASU was very efficient when it was going over the top with deep passes against Oregon, a very solid defense the week prior to the game against Arizona. And then they didn't do that in the game against Arizona, despite U of A or U Arizona having a, a very poor secondary. And that was something that Chris, you and I thought was very interesting. And I still think that <clears throat> was one of my biggest takeaways defensively though. I think, and this was one of the things that was very impressive to me, Evan Fields and Jermaine Lole had really good games. Jermaine Lole continues to be a presence in the pass rush. He now leads the team in sacks. He has five this season and Evan Fields had a lot of really good quarterback pressures. His speed was a factor in the game, especially with Khalil Tate at quarterback and he led ASU with 10 tackles. So there was that one play where Evan Fields, and it's on Twitter, where Evan Fields chased Khalil Tate out of the pocket, and that one sticks out to me. And it was just, from those two defensively, a very impressive game. Yeah, I think 
ASU was, was uh, a little bit maybe caught off guard because Arizona played more three deep zone and backed off its corners more than it had uh, in earlier games. Arizona has obviously been a really bad secondary, as you said, all season and tried doing a lot of that with man coverage and, and failing miserably and getting beaten deep and then trying to go to more zone and getting just run around uh, underneath uh, on receptions. The thing that I felt like ASU didn't do in the first half when it had a a really bad performance, um, looking at it now, 63 total yards in the first quarter, 83 in the second quarter, uh, like that's really bad, and only two penalties in the half. So it wasn't like they were moving themselves backwards and putting themselves behind the chains. It was more that um, they just seemed to be discombobulated a little bit offensively and what they were trying to do because of how Arizona was defending them. But I I really felt like there was an opportunity – just to sort of dink and dunk their way down the field on a lot of shorter things. But then we found out after the game that Brandon Ike was playing less than full strength. Of course, Frank Darby, he seems to be sort of a boomer bust player and he has had a really great second half of the season, but it's, it's primarily been big plays. And if you're, you know, giving him a huge cushion and you're not letting him kind of run by you. you know, most of his big plays have been with corners of the line of scrimmage where he's been able to beat those guys. Right. And so he I, dropped a touchdown and he dropped a touchdown in this game. Yeah. As I was, I was going to get to that. And, and um, so, you know, I think maybe Kyle Williams would have been a guy to, to maybe utilize more in the first half of this game, but ASU I'm sure had a meeting of the minds in the at halftime and was like, well, if they're just going to hang back like that and play off of us and back their safeties up, Let's just run the ball right at them. And so they came out and, and did that pretty successfully and, and dominated the game in the second half. Um, you know, Benjamin, 3-0 and in his career. He didn't uh, obviously play much in his, his first year. Uh, I don't think he had any carries, actually. But uh, two-time Bob Moran MVP of the game for ASU back-to-back. He uh, had that touchdown in Tucson in the same end zone with Keith Poole celebrated in the face of the U of A player when ASU went to the Rose Bowl uh, in a similar fashion, got up into his face. It, 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 it struck a tone, and Benjamin said after that game that he saw that highlight and it really stayed with him. And then, as Trevor mentioned, uh, running the Arizona player on a block uh, for Dan- Daniels, I believe, into the, into the sidelines, onto the bench, basically made him the guy like lie down on the bench and then ran back. Um, and then what he did in the second half, he had his, his, his best game of the season in terms of rushing yards. Right. And uh, over a thousand yards in the game going down in history, of course, is one of the best running backs to ever do it at ASU. That's something I'm going to take from that. And, and uh, just, I was on the field after the game, like a lot of people, and he didn't chase around the trophy or really any of that. You could tell he was just kind of probably tired and uh, knew he would get his chance with it, but uh, it was very memorable. And also just um, the way the ASU finished the season is important to, to, to point out, right? Because mm-hmm. definitely, what would have happened if ASU had lost to either Oregon or Arizona or maybe even both teams would have been a entirely different feeling mm-hmm. that fans would have about where this program is at versus winning both of those games. And even if ASU had beaten Arizona, which would have been kind of totally expected, but had lost to Oregon and six and six, I think that would have been pretty lackluster. Just something about getting those, that win over Oregon 
followed by the winner of Arizona, the 7-5, even with the coaching dismissals, which I think a lot of fans actually like. There was a, a, a lot of fans who didn't like Rob Likens as a, I mean, as a person, but as an offensive coordinator. Mm-hmm. So I, and the fact that Herm Edwards is decisive about the moves that he's making right. and is, try, is being more on the aggressive side to try to capitalize right. on what he thinks he needs to do to, to maximize Daniels and the rest of their class. I think fans are very invested right now. Um, and I also, you know, would mention again, the column that I wrote last week, even before the game, which um, I didn't wait for the game to say that I was wrong about uh, Herm Edwards. I mean, not, you know, about Herm Edwards basically being uh, maybe not as, as appealing a hire for ASU or not make as much sense to ASU as Kevin Sumlin. I think pretty clearly that uh, ASU is in a better place and a better direction uh, than what's happening in Tucson. Yeah. Um, now we're going to get into ASU basketball a little bit. We haven't had a podcast since ASU had a close win on the road at Princeton. That was right before Thanksgiving, uh, I believe on Tuesday of last week. Uh, Remy Martin in that game, 33 points on an efficient 13 of 23 shooting, 3 of 6 from downtown. He was Pac-12 player of the week after that. Really amazing performance by him and the rest of the team. Really uh, game winner uh, with Khalid Thomas on the three-pointer that I think a lot of us didn't expect Khalid Thomas to make much of an impact, especially on the road when he hadn't made much of an impact at home against two of the lesser non-conference opponents that ASU had uh, in Tempe. So what did you guys make of that game? And then also the San Francisco game, another close road win for ASU. Well, ASU just continues to find a way to win these games. I mean, granted, I think ASU fans are probably wary of the team ever scheduling Princeton again because losing in Tempe by one and then another super close uh, game on the road, which they win. But, I mean, overall, I mean, Remy Martin in the Princeton game – he was a man possessed. He couldn't miss, it seemed like. He was taking deep shots. He had acrobatic uh, finishes at the rim. And on the the possession that led to the game winner, he's the one who drew the double team. I mean, the pick and roll with Khalid Thomas uh, rolling out to the wing. If Remy Martin doesn't draw the double team and then have the basketball IQ and the awareness to kick it out and trust Khalid Thomas to make that shot, I mean, it never gets set up in the first place. So, yes, I right. mean, Khalid Thomas... Uh, having really a breakout game and then also played well again in that San Francisco game. He got the kind of the, the game ceiling steal uh, to secure the win against San Francisco, but uh, really good for ASU to kind of get Khalid Thomas more comfortable. Um, Alonzo Verge didn't play against Princeton. with He was still dealing with a right wrist injury, um, and, and he looked a little shaky in that San Francisco game coming back in his first game back after missing three games. But it, it was really good for ASU to get Khalid Thomas more comfortable and, and more active and, and mm-hmm. let him hit that big shot, and then obviously just getting more great production out of Remy Martin and Romello White as well. Yeah, I think one of the – Things are maybe the issues that ASU is looking at right now is the slow starts, and we saw that in a little bit in their East Coast trip. Went down 15-2 to against St. John's, and then they had another early deficit mm-hmm. against Virginia, and then the same thing against Princeton. They right. got down immediately by double digits, and in that point, you're, you have to have someone like Remy Martin to step him and kind of get things going when you can't really get into an offensive flow and you're trying to execute a game plan. That's at a point where it's just not working, and you've got to be able to find a run before things get out of hand, especially on the road, which is where ASU has played um, away from Tempe in five of its first seven games. So mm-hmm. I think it's something to be said, too, right. that they're finding a way to come back in these games, especially when they've been on the road so much. And uh, Khalid Thomas's impact in that game was much needed, especially since Kamani Lawrence and Tayshawn Cherry had been struggling throughout that stretch. Uh, ASU hadn't, a lot of, hadn't had a lot of production in its front court, and that's still 
had been um, in the process of being stabilized, uh, especially since they had those guys that were out for the first game. Um, so to see him come in, and Bobby Hurley said he was practicing much better. Khalid Thomas was and proving that he should be on the court. Mm -hmm. uh, he got his first career start in the San Francisco game. I think, uh, too, that was only the third time, Rob, this season that ASU had had its full rotation available. And you saw a couple guys that were uncomfortable and maybe just out of, out of touch. Alonzo Verge came in and I think on four of his first five possessions um, tried to get his own shot, and that led to a quick 8-0 run from San Francisco. Um, there were a couple times where Rob Edwards took some screen and rolls and maybe took some shots early in the shot clock that weren't as, um, weren't, weren't as necessarily in the offense as Bobby Hurley would have liked it to Ben. So that's something they're really going to have to figure out. They have an opportunity um, with all of their next six games being in the state of Arizona and, and finishing out this non-conference schedule before they place, um, excuse me, face Arizona. Um, but they're at a point where they're finding a way um, to figure out these games, uh, especially in the San Francisco game, executing down the stretch and forcing them to miss their last eight shots was something impressive in that one. That was impressive. The both teams played really poorly down in the last <laughs> minute or two. Uh, big picture, ASU five and two overall. I think that's about what we would have expected before the start of the season. You knew that Virginia was going to be a tough game. ASU had a chance to capitalize. Uh, you figured ASU probably would have lost one other game somewhere along the way, if not Colorado, maybe St. John's, maybe at San Francisco. Um, I was struck by the fact that Khalid Thomas is all of a sudden playing these, this big role, big minutes, you know, <laughs> uh, um, in that game at Princeton when he couldn't even get on the floor in a 30 point something win against Ryder or, or central Connecticut state. Like, why is he not getting more minutes? Uh, it really sort of strikes me that maybe Bobby Hurley wasn't happy with the way that Thomas started the season from a maybe a practice standpoint his engagement his his you know all the things that you know coach a lot of coaches really want to see before they, they they allocate minutes to players uh and he sort of referenced that obliquely when he said that thomas started to do some of the things i kind of wanted to see from him and figuring it out big picture that's probably good for asu because uh, we've seen Kamani Lawrence really struggle to start the season. He had some minutes that were better um, in this last game. Uh, Tayshawn Cherry's been Tayshawn Cherry. You know he's been hot and cold, and you know finding elbows and knees and everything, kind of hitting him and going down and all that stuff. But um, they're going to need you know elevated play from probably two of those three guys when they get into the Pac-12 and. It's going to be different probably on some nights, but they're going to need that. And and or Jalen Graham, of course, right? Jalen Graham had what I thought was an extremely impressive post move uh, there in the first half against San Francisco. Patient, good footwork, rhythm to what he was doing. You know, There was nothing rushed about it whatsoever. Good feel. I think he has a lot of upside. Uh, I think he, he and... Jalen House, who's kind of all over the place and, you know, kind of crazy. Um, but I think that's going to be harnessed. You always want, as coaches, you always want to, to harness guys uh, rather than have to coax stuff out of players. And so, so Jalen House, he really has that. I think he's been a spark plug. Even in games when he didn't impact the, the stat sheet that much, he's had a big impact with coming off the bench mm -hmm. and being an, an energetic boost to what their, right. their their team has been. And um, 
So let's see what's going to happen with Alonzo Verge coming off of the wrist. He was forcing the issue in that game very yeah. much at the outset at San Francisco. I think a lot of times when guys, their shots not falling, when they're not getting the points that they're used to, and he seems like a guy who was, you know, able to just dominate and score the ball almost at will at the junior college level, it's hard to adjust to playing somewhere else, not getting a lot of those points, trying to figure out your way, and especially when you have the wrist and that you're coming back. I just think he hasn't gotten any kind of a rhythm. Bobby Hurley has said over and over and over again that he thinks that Verge is one of the best offensive players he's been around as a guard. So, so you know, at some point you would imagine that he's going to have a big game. And for ASU to be 5-2 and two with that not happening, with the struggles of Kamani Lawrence, with Tayshawn Cherry being what he has been, it's actually not a bad start, all things considered. But at the same time, you would say that that doesn't bode extremely well for ASU's overall prospects in what looks to be an improving Pac-12 this year. And so to say that ASU's a bubble team would probably be, at this point in time, sort of the best-case scenario, I would mm-hmm. say, for ASU. Yeah, I definitely agree. And just back to the Verge point, he was a 30-plus point-per-game scorer at the junior college level, led uh, junior college in scoring. So when you make the transition to this kind of higher level, better competition, and you're playing alongside a player like Remy Martin, I'm sure Verge is used to being the go-to guy, the the, the ball-dominant player. He's the one bringing the ball up the, the floor in, in junior college, and now he's learning to have to play off-ball with a player like Remy Martin, distributing it to him but but he did look and show flashes in the San Francisco game with his passing ability to Romello wide in the post he had uh so, some nice dishes so I mean I, I there's definitely going to be time for him to transition especially coming back off the wrist as well and the play of Jalen Graham and Jalen House has to be really encouraging for ASU fans as well that they're contributing as much as they have been I mean granted Jalen House makes a freshman mistake at the end of the San Francisco game with the Eurostep bricked layup trying to make I don't know, extend the lead, but I mean, he should have probably ran out the clock a little bit, but I mean, you're up four points. Yeah, exactly. 30 something seconds. Right. So it's definitely should have ran out the clock there, but, but the freshman stakes aside, uh, they've played relatively well in their little bit of experience thus far. You you mentioned it just now about ASU's ability to find Romello White down low. Uh, Bobby Hurley actually talked about that after, or sorry, at halftime about how he was super impressed and happy with ASU's ability to distribute the ball into the post and to find those guys down low. And you mentioned it, how Verge did a really good job of doing that. He only had two assists on the game, but he had multiple really great passes. Chris, you and I were actually texting during the game about how just flawless some of the passes that he was making were. I would also say that Remy Martin, and everybody knows that this is one of the things that he does really well, but Remy Martin distributed the ball especially well during that San Francisco game. And then the last thing that I was going to mention, Mason, you covered it too, was that last 30-second run by by uh, Jalen House going straight to the basket instead of holding on to the ball. ASU actually got pretty lucky towards the end of that game. They won by four, and San Francisco didn't make a shot in its last three minutes and 30 seconds of the game. Had San Francisco shot the ball a little bit better, I don't know that the outcome is the same. So just the way that San Francisco played was very lucky and in favor of ASU. But all in all, there were a little bit of there were some hiccups and a lot of interesting things that came out of this game. I think. And just to button this up, uh, Remy Martin clearly drew the ire of, of Hurley on multiple occasions in that game for quick jack shots and defensive uh, issues. I don't. I think that he had a poor defensive game. And when you're a senior, I mean, a, a junior who's like your team leader, right? Everybody else is going to feed off of what you do on that side of the floor. And so he was pulled a couple times from the game. And I, I really think that uh, he can't get caught up on 
the whole like I'm going to score a bunch of points and I'll have the ball every time and create for my opponents, but then not have great defensive focus. And I just think that that was clearly an issue in that game that has to be monitored moving forward. And there was another play too when ASU was in a two-on-one scenario and he hit the wrong read and transition. And that was right after he jacked up, I think, a bad shot too. Um, So just adding into that fact, Mm -hmm. um, one thing that I wanted to briefly touch on is Romello White. He's been used a lot um, in ASU's games so far. He exceeded 30 minutes and I think all of their games when they were out in the East Coast. And then against San Francisco, he had 26 and probably would have had over 30 again had he not rolled his ankle the one time. And then he got hit in the chin later. Um, ASU is just going to need front court production, especially for him, especially since he's had these little moments of scares with his high usage rate and how much they're going to rely on him to get rebounds. And if other teams are going to go at him and get him in foul trouble, those other guys are going to have to be able to step up too. Definitely. Okay, so the team now uh, is back home three consecutive games um, at in Tempe uh, with Louisiana, Prairie View, A&M, and then Georgia, and then the St. Mary's game. Uh, that is going to be the, in the Basketball Hall of Fame showcase. Um, but now we are going to move into picks for the Pac-12 championship game between number five Utah and Oregon. Guys, Utah favored by four and a half points on a neutral Utah's side. favored by six and a half in the updated line. It opened at four and a half, and it's Excuse now me, six, six and, a half. and a half in the updated line uh, on a neutral site. Um, guys, what do you have in that one? Well, I've put Utah ahead of Oregon for many weeks in my uh, 24-7 sports power rankings for the Pac-12. I think Utah's been the better team, is the better team. I don't think Oregon's played well of late, uh, and, and I think Utah's going to win that game. That six and a half line is really tight. Uh, but I'm going to take Utah to cover. I'm going to take Utah to win and no cover. Uh, Utah's, I think, trending more upward than Oregon, especially just toward the end of the season uh, with Oregon kind of, I mean, losing to ASU, obviously. And then, I mean, their Civil War game against Oregon State wasn't super special. So I'm going to take Utah to win and cover. I actually think ASU gave Utah the blueprint defensively of how to completely shut down Oregon. And I think that Utah has the better defense. So I think Utah wins and covers easily. I don't think Utah needed the blueprint from ASU. With, with like, I think Utah needed <laughs> the, it one of the best ASU. defenses in the country. I, I'm not saying they needed the blueprint, but I'm just saying that ASU did a really good job secondary-wise of getting in Justin Herbert's head and beating him. And Justin Herbert was not a big turnover guy before that game, and ASU got him three times. I would say that that was a very interesting thing for Utah to see. And now Utah has an incredibly good defense, which ASU struggled against mightily. Does anybody I, have the phone number of Oregon Kyle wins and covers. so we can ask if if, uh, if he's been scouting that ASU? <laughs> wow. <laughs> All right, Trevor, what, what do you think, man? I have Utah to win and cover. Um, and I was wondering, do, do you guys think that Utah will also make the playoff if they win this game? I do not. I think probably not. Let's go. Utah in the playoff, baby. I, I think they do make the playoff, uh, especially with their defense. I think that has a little bit of consideration over like an Oklahoma or a Baylor. and how Oklahoma's defense is an abomination, but, but, but they but, do have Jalen Hurts, and but, I think that they will make the playoff if, if they beat If Baylor. Oklahoma wins, you don't you think that they're going to jump them still or, or no? I, I think I, – I don't know. I think Utah will be able to win that game convincingly enough, not saying it's going to be lopsided, but I think just with where they're at that they'll get the edge. So wait, let's let's actually end on that. Does Utah make the playoff or not if they win this game? I say no. I think no. No. Yes. Yes. 
All right, so you got three no's and two <laughs> yeses. So that's going to wrap up this edition of the Sun Devil Source Report podcast. We are going to have a premium edition uh, a little bit later talking about recruiting updates and more analysis on what Chris thinks uh, about a lot of the recent coaching uh, moves that are being made. Um, so make sure to be looking out for that. But right now, for site publisher Chris Cartman and staff reporters Mason Kern, Trevor Booth, and Jacob Rudner, I'm your host, Rob Warner, saying so long, and we'll see you soon. Kuna Matapa.